that talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to your Friday Buckeye Talk. Doug Maurice and Nathan Baird redoing this because the combine killed us. We are talking about the NFL combine. We're talking about what Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave did in their drills and in their route running and stuff at the combine on Thursday. We're going to talk about uh, my interviews with Thayer Munford and Nicholas Petit Frere, who spoke with the offensive lineman on Thursday. I have an interview with Deontay Lee, old friend of Buckeye Talk. Had him on two years ago, breaking down Ohio State's defense. He works for PFF now. He and I talked about Jim Knowles, Chris Olave, Garrett Wilson, Jackson Smith and Jigba, CJ Stroud. That'll come along later in the pod, and then we'll end the pod when I talk to Stephen Means about the basketball win for the Buckeyes over Michigan State on Thursday night. But Nathan and I just did about 25 minutes on the Ohio State receivers based on their unofficial 40 times. And Nathan, as we were finishing that up, you said, uh-oh, we have a problem. Buckeye talk. And the problem is we have to change what we think because the numbers changed. At least one of them did kind of significantly. Yeah. So the unofficial number had Chris Olave running a, a four two six, which would have been the fastest time other than the 4.2 run run by the, the, the guy from Baylor also tonight, fastest time since 2017. And then when they put out the official numbers, it was 4.39. Still a very solid number, but not like a scintillating, crazy fast number. And actually, it was one, what is, I was going to up, one hundredth of a second slower than Garrett Wilson, instead of being about 15 hundredths of a second faster. And it goes from the second fastest receiver here, in the 40 to the ninth fastest receiver. And the ninth fastest receiver is still fast, but it's not the second fastest receiver. So we, you know, like we can, we go, we'll put it in the Buckeye Talk vault. We said a lot of glowing things about Chris Olave. And I think they're all still true, Nathan. But we were couching a lot of the discussion in the context of, man, if you thought he was this, he might really be this now. If you thought he was, the 23rd pick, he might be the 15th pick now. And we had a discussion briefly about, could there be teams that like Chris Olave more than Garrett Wilson? Because one thing that did not change is Garrett Wilson weighed in at 183 pounds on Thursday, which is nine pounds under his Ohio State listed weight. And Chris Olave weighed in at 188, which is like kind of around his list of weight. We thought that would be flipped. We thought Wilson would be bigger than Olave. Olave was just over six feet tall, 188. Garrett Wilson was 5'11 and a half, 183. And so it was like, man, you know, Chris is bigger than Garrett. And then he's like a, a tenth faster than Garrett. Holy moly, people are really going to take note of that. And now it turns out that Garrett was, they basically ran the same time. But in a world where we thought Olave ran a 426, we were starting to wonder if this guy was going in the top 15. Does this bring him just back into range of, man, he's one of the top five receivers for sure, maybe top four, maybe even higher than that, but maybe not quite crawling up the board like we initially thought. Well, I think it's more, this is more the expectation, right? Like if you'd said coming into the draft that, or coming into the combine, that Chris Olave had run like a 4-4 flat 40, you'd be like, all right, yeah, that sounds, I mean, that's pretty it's fast. Really, yeah, it's good. It's that's, good, that's, yeah. That's, that's, that's pretty good. So I don't think this hurts him. 
by any stretch. I think no, it's more right. just validating what people thought about Chris Lave as opposed to that original number, which sort of like put a jetpack on the back of what people thought about Chris Olave potentially where I mean we ended that segment by me asking you like is he maybe now the the best draft the best receiver prospect in this draft if you're going to be that if you have all these other intangibles and the and you know people like your you think you run the best routes here and you're that fluid and all these other things and you're running crazy fast times like 4.26 so now you take that off the board and it becomes more just like oh well Chris Olave is he, he sort of is validating what people already thought about him. It justifies, I think, maybe the, the the status that he had coming in. He's still very good. He just did maybe, yeah, didn't exceed expectations by as much as we initially thought. Looked really fluid in the drills, smooth catching the ball, good acceleration on his routes, catching the deep balls. And the thing that we, you know, that we had talked about and still can talk about, Nathan, is a lot of time these fast, fast, fast guys the guys who really burn it up at the combine, sometimes they're little guys, they're 5'9". Sometimes they're track guys who, you know, put on a receiver costume and go out on the field on Saturdays, but they're not as complete of a football player as Chris Olave is. He's still really fast for what for everything else he brings to the table. And so I think whether it's 4'26 or now that it's 4'39, it still tells you this guy has the flat-out speed to be a deep threat from a speed standpoint on top of all the other things that he does. He does not have to be only a deep threat. He is not only a speed guy. He is a complete, smooth, smart, precise, fluid receiver who also happens to be really fast, which again continues to be something that teams might be interested in, not just in the first round. I think, I think he comes out of this, Nathan, if anybody thought, man, I don't know, I could maybe see him sliding to the second round. I think he's locked down first round status with what he did in Indianapolis, the way he looked in Indianapolis. And somebody might like him enough to take him in the top half of that first round, even at 439, if it's not 426. And and just literally showing up and and doing the measurements, like literally showing up and having the height and weight he did, I think was was a big start to that. As we already said, I, I, like as you mentioned, like because I did mention this in the the first time I recorded this, the last time someone had run a time under th- that's that fast was the four point two two John Ross ran in twenty seventeen, but that was a five eleven guy, and I think you know it's great when those those guys show up and run those times, but sometimes. Those times, you know, people fall in love with those times a little bit. They get enamored, and now you're drafting a guy based just off of the speed. I think for Olave, again, the package is already there. The production is already there. All of that stuff is verified. A lot of the intangible stuff is verified with him. The The route running is verified. And now this just says on top of all that, it wasn't smoke and mirrors um, in terms of the speed. Like, it wasn't that he played in the right system. It wasn't that he uh, played with really good quarterbacks alone. It wasn't that he had Garrett Wilson there to kind of carve up defenses with him and and the um, the dual kind of gravity that they have against defenses would was causing enough problems that that's what got him open. I mean, legitimately, the guy is this fast. So uh, that is going to end up helping him, and I think you're right. I think he's absolutely a first round pick now and all those teams that aren't getting Garrett Wilson um, maybe the Browns whoever uh, maybe take an even longer look at him now because he's just um, I think proven himself that he can as you said he can be 
more than one thing to, to any team that takes him. So Garrett Wilson, as it turns out, he thought, man, I, some people think I might run in the mid four fives sort of thinking like, Oh, if he can break four or five, that'd be good that he now runs. What is four, three, seven for him? Is that right? That's four, three, eight for him. And it was four, three, nine for a lot okay. four, three, eight for Wilson. On the unofficial, he had run four three seven, so he his basically stays the same. But again, we had been talking about it a tenth slower than Olave. Now it turns out he's a little bit he's a nanosecond faster than Chris Olave. This is a really good time for Garrett Wilson, and he was doing his drills, looking explosive. You know, he's running sideline routes and doing the thing where it looks like he's he's going up against air, but it looks like he's skying over a DB and making catches in the air. That explosion was there. You didn't know for sure if the raw speed was quite, quite there with Garrett Wilson. Um, a lot of things confirmed, again, for him tonight. Traylon Burks and Drake London are the big receivers in this draft. Tra- Traylon Burks is 225 pounds. Drake London is 6'4". Drake London's coming off an injury. He didn't run. Traylon Burks ran 4'5'5". Five, five. But again, he's doing it 42 pounds heavier than Garrett Wilson. But I think for Garrett Wilson to put down these numbers, good initial sp- um, burst with his ter- first 10 yards off the line, a lot of confirmation here that I don't think Garrett Wilson's going anywhere other than where we thought, which is top 15 for sure, maybe top 10 and a very, very strong push to be the first receiver off the board. Yeah. I can't remember if you just said this, cause I know we said it in the first one, but he had told us the other day that he was hearing people thought he was going to run like mid four fives. Yeah. Yeah. So to come out and run four, three, eight, it's at the time, like we said this on, on the Wednesday pod that, when you hear that, then it takes a little bit of the pressure off in some ways. If you're confident, like you can come out, you can run like four or five flat and people will be like, oh, well, it wasn't as bad as we thought. I mean, he is he's, he's fast enough. But when you then come and run a time like this, I think it ranks eighth uh, among the receivers that are here. No, I, I think this is the one that now he can stay. He exceeded expectations a little bit. And he was already the number one. Some people considering him maybe the number one receiver at this combine or at, in this draft class. So to then come out and run a time like that on top of that, when when speed was maybe one of the, I don't know if you call it a knock against him, but one of the things that people thought wasn't um, upper upper tier for him. Now that he's come out and run that, I think it 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 may push him up even more draft boards. And maybe the teams that really want him, the teams that were really going to have to fight to get him in the in that top ten kind of range, are are um, I'm sure getting a little nervous tonight. Paris Campbell, two years ago here, no, three years ago here, uh, 2019 combine. Paris Campbell ran a 4-3-1 official, and Terry McLaurin ran a 4-3-5 official. So those both slightly faster than Wilson and Olave. Neither of them as productive as Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave. Part of that a change in the Ohio State offense, but part of who they are as receivers. Paris Campbell, just a completely different kind of player in the slot, big physical guy. Questions about his hands, not the complete overall receiver that Olave and Wilson are. And Terry McLaurin just didn't get the ball that much at Ohio State. Had like 35 catches his last year or whatever it was. Third round pick turns out to be a true number one receiver in the NFL. So, you know, these are these are again, Wilson and Olave are in the range with those guys as two receivers who I don't I don't think needed the combine maybe as much as McLaurin and Campbell needed the combine because McLaurin and Campbell although they were excellent players at Ohio state, 
didn't have quite the overall games, didn't show quite the overall game. So I do think it's, it's a good day for those two guys. Again, you know, the NFL networks doing their wrap up, Nathan, back when we thought it was still a four, two, six from Olave. They like, they're talking about the receivers. Chris Olave is the lead. He's the number one guy. Like he's like the guy off the board. Like, like he won the day. And so, you know, maybe he didn't win the day quite as much as we thought, but he still helped himself. And so two good performances from the Ohio state receivers here. Is why we don't do a Buckeye talk live. If we can get <laughs> avoided from something like this, because we'd be the ones who I literally, I, that was actually a really good pod that we recorded. Actually, by the way, those 25 minutes, those, that was really strong. I was actually thinking at the time, I'm like, Oh man, we've got some good, we've got some good quips in here. We've got some good anecdotes, we've got some good back and forth. And now it's all just going to get flushed. Like, like anything else looking at this by the way this 2019 receiver draft class is really interesting because it kind of encapsulates some of the things we've been talking about tonight how did terry mclaurin last the third round because so andy isabella from umass one of these little guys a five nine guy that ran four three one northeast paris ohio campbell, guy northeast ohio guy okay then uh paris campbell four three one as a six oh two oh five guy dk metcalf six three two twenty eight four thirty three we that turned out all right and and then um, McCole Hardman, another smaller guy, 5'10", 433. And then Terry McLaurin, 6'2", 408, 434.35. None of those guys went higher than the second round. None of those guys went higher than the 56th pick. So um, I was writing about Chris Olave for tomorrow morning anyway before all this was going to happen. And he mentioned Terry McLaurin and how much of a um, impact that McLaurin had on him, that he was really kind of a mentor, a guy that took him under his wing. McLaurin, uh, not quite the same, um, what do you want to say path that Olave had, but, but some similarities there. I mean, he was a four-star prospect, but he was ranked around 250. So he wasn't all the way down to, to where Olave was, where you would get into the range of almost like the, the forgotten prospects, the real diamond in the rough kind of situation. But I think, he saw in McLaurin a a role model a little bit. And then especially the way I mean, he saw him, he was a freshman in 2018 when McLaurin was a senior. Then McLaurin comes to in spring 2019, runs that time, goes in the third round, and has been one of the best receivers in the NFL ever since. And I think that picture kind of hanging out there in front of Olave has sort of helped spur him on. He says he talks to him routinely. They text back and forth all the time. And that's been a guy that has sort of helped uh, bring him along and and show him the, the the path to get to where he is now. And he, unlike, and he, it was funny. He mentioned a handful of other receivers that he looks up to. I, I'm trying to think. It was Stefan Diggs and Devontae Adams and Deshaun Jackson, a bunch of other guys who also did not go in the first round. But now Chris Olave is the one who will probably, especially I think after tonight. Uh, yeah, Chris Olave. 65 catches for Ohio State this season. Terry McLaurin had 75 catches his entire career at Ohio there State. So that, Terry, that McLaurin, Terry McLaurin, 35 catches for 701 and 11 touchdowns his last year. He, just, he, didn't, he didn't get the ball. Hot, uh, up there with Pete Warner, probably, of like guys hiding in plain sight during their Ohio State career. That it was like, oh, I don't know, it's this Terry McLaurin guy. He's like, he's like Terry McLaurin, like, tr- tremendous dude, tremendous dude. Absolutely just like so fun and 
smart and affable and just like, gosh, you love Terry McLaurin. It's like, man, this is like a, just a great fifth round pick of a dude. And it's like, no, (laughs) he's a great dude. And he's a 1200 yard receiver in the NFL, everybody. And uh, they were just learning how to use him. It is one of those kinds of things that I'm trying, I don't know that like as a play style and that kind of thing, it's not a bad comparison. Like Chris, and I know you weren't making that comparison, but like actually McLaurin as a comparison for a lot of the way they were used their downfield ability, it's not a bad comparison. So if there are people in the NFL that were like, man, Terry McLaurin, like was a third round pick who now produces like a first round receiver. We better take Chris Olave in the first round. It's like, yeah. Like if Chris Olave is Terry McLaurin, that's a home run with pick 15 in this draft. Right. So, um, so good news for these guys. Again, I'll try to go through, should I go through the other podcast and just pick out like random one-liners and like, Oh, this was a good 31 second discussion that didn't center around the four, two, six. I'll just drop it in somewhere. There was, there was some fun stuff in there. I wish we could revisit. Um, maybe we should have it. It should be like a subscriber only like Easter egg that we hide somewhere and they can, they can go click on it and, and listen to it. it. The problem is then like somebody records it and sends it out and uh, us just, you know, absolutely wetting our pants over this four, two, six, the crystal lava ran that turns out didn't exist. Yeah. Who knows? We could just say like, I did, I, I think that I said something like other than, my wedding day and the birth of my children, Chris Olave running a four, two, six was the greatest thing that's ever happened in my life. And now it turned out not to be true. I don't know. How do you get, is it just the guy? Does, did the guy at the NFL network just have a quick, a quick twitch finger on that? How do you miss that by 0.13, dude? That's a big miss. Well, and I guess, and it's also like we had long, like he had already run that time before I got to Indianapolis. There was a while bef- after I got to Indianapolis, before we started recording, then we recorded that whole podcast segment. And then like, imagine if you were like covering, like I used to cover a lot of high school sports, like the state track meet or whatever, like they run across the line. And then within like 30 seconds, the time's on the board. Like why this is the NFL. Why does it take them an hour and a half to put a time up? Aren't there lasers? There's lasers, aren't there? There's, it's, it's allegedly. Yeah. Come on. Oh, so now you want the robots help. Well, I, I mean, yeah, for something like this, I, I'd rather like an old man with a, is everybody stopwatch ready? No, yeah, I want a robot instead of that. That's, I'm okay with that. I'm okay. I don't want a robot making my coffee, but I want a robot timing Chris Olave. That's a, that's a great use of a robot, frankly. Okay, so I think we covered the receiver stuff we wanted to cover. Garrett Wilson, I think, remains right there. Uh, Traylon Burks did not go nuts. The thing, one of the things that was in play for Garrett Wilson is Traylon Burks, 42 pounds heavier and two inches taller than Garrett Wilson running faster than Garrett Wilson. That was maybe something that people talked about because people were like, I don't know, is Traylon Burks at 225 going to run like, like a, like a four, four, five. And is Garrett Wilson going to run a four five flat? And then it's like, no. So Traylon Burks still ran fast for his size. But I think it was on the board going into Thursday night. Does Traylon Burks maybe jump up as everyone's number one receiver all of a sudden? And again, Drake London is the big receiver option. That just is. He and Garrett Wilson are completely different. If you want a big receiver, if you want Mike Williams, then you go draft Drake London and then Garrett Wilson can't make himself grow. I think, but Garrett Wilson did everything he needed to do. I still think in the end, Olave moves up probably. And 
if he's in competition with Jamison Williams and maybe Jahan Dotson or David Bell, David Bell, for instance, who is a little bigger, he's like over 200 pounds, did not run that fast. No. So like David Bell, like two tenths slower than Olave and Wilson. Like that's just, there's just a difference there. Jahan Dotson ran a four, four, one. That's good. He's five ten. So Jahan Dotson, two inches shorter than Chris Olave and slower. Right. So, I mean, like there's just things there. I don't know how anyone comes away thinking David Bell or Jahan Dotson over Chris Olave. Not that that many thought it before. So I think there's a top five there. That's Wilson, London, Burks, Olave, Jamison Williams. We'll see how Jamison Williams gets through the rest of the draft process. But I do think it's very possible that Wilson remains, that Wilson is the first receiver drafted. That's still where I would bet my money right now. And I would bet my money right now that Olave is either the third or fourth receiver drafted. Mm-hmm. Because I think if Traylon Burks, if you have any question about, is he a little too big? Is the, you know, some of the quick twitch stuff, he's an excellent specimen, but if you don't want your receiver to look like a linebacker, here's a, here's a well-rounded receiver who runs a four, three, nine, and is a deep threat. Chris Olave, come on down. So that, that would be my guess. Olave third or fourth Wilson first coming off what we saw today. As, as we walk away from this, any disagreement or any thoughts about their, their place in the pecking order? No, and I think the comparison that we've been making all along or that that uh, how intrigued we've been about that choice teams may have between James Williams and Chris Olave this time doesn't change that that much. I think the 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 unofficial time made you think like, well, how much faster could Jameson Williams really be? And if Chris Olave is all these other things, well, you know, forget about it. But now it's now it is where and Williams told us, uh, told reporters at the, the combine the other day that he never ran the forty at Alabama. I don't remember seeing. I, I'm sure his time from when he was at Ohio State is out there because I know there was a point where they posted some times um, f- randomly a, a couple of years ago. So there may be a time out there from his time at Ohio State. He was just saying, "Well, whatever the fastest time is, just say I'm faster than that," which I thought was a very Jameson Williams <laughs> fun, cocky thing to say. But when it's four point two six and four point two one out there, I'm thinking like, "Whoa!" I wouldn't just assume that you're that that you're faster than that. I think he probably is faster than four three nine and four three eight. I think he probably would be the fastest of the three um, Ohio State affiliated guys. But um, so that's still going to be an interesting question are there teams that think he is so fast and that's their their need above anything else that they would take him over Olave? but i i just think the whole package i i i, I don't know how you don't take a lobby there chris Olave did post a photo on instagram after all the drills of chris Olave, garrett wilson and jameson williams together so mm-hmm. that bond remains we've talked about that those guys still support each other and uh, two good nights for the Ohio State receivers. Pro day for Ohio State may, or excuse me, March 23rd coming up. So these guys, again, I don't know. We had said 426. I don't know that Chris Olave needs to run again. Maybe he will run again if worth a 439. Maybe, maybe. Um, Garrett Wilson might not, but again, they'll go through their receiver drills and they'll decide if there's any other, um, you know, agility or jumping drills they want to do. Probably not. But yeah, other, just- other Ohio State guys will have their chance to do that. I mean, if you if you really are considered the best route runner in the draft and you're a little bit bigger than maybe people suspected and you can run a sub 4-4, I don't know. I might call that a day and just cash my check. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that could be, could be the day. All right, two good days for them. We'll come back, talk about Nicholas Petit-Frere, talk about Thayer Munford, what I talked about with those guys. 
on Thursday, and then we'll have Deontay Lee come in and talk a little Ohio State football before we get to basketball talk next on Buckeye Talk. Doug Maurice and Nathan Baird, Stephen Means will be along in a little bit, Deontay Lee along in a little bit here on your Friday Buckeye Talk. Again, we'll wrap up the Combine in a Saturday Buckeye Talk since we didn't have a podcast on Thursday. Uh, 614-350-3315 to join us on text. We've been texting stuff out during the day. Uh, as we gather stuff here at the Combine. And again, as you guys are listening to this on Friday, Haskell Garrett, Tyreek Smith, the two Buckeyes that we'll be able to talk to uh, in Indianapolis on Friday. On Thursday, Nathan, interviews with Thayer Munford and Nicholas Petit-Frere. And I wrote about this at cleveland.com slash OSU. People can go find it. I texted about it. But maybe not a huge shock given what we've learned about Nicholas Petit-Frere. Nicholas Petit-Frere gave perhaps the most enthusiastic NFL Combine interview that I've ever, ever been a part of on Thursday. This was a guy totally embracing the moment, multiple times talked about how excited he is to run the 40 at the Combine because he's of a generation and of an age who grew up watching the kind of thing that we all watched on Wednesday, uh, on Thursday, I mean, watching Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave, he said, oh, when you were a kid and you watched these big guys run and you thought, man, I can't wait. Someday I want to be one of these big guys running at the NFL Combine. I was like, do a lot of people watch the Combine and think that? Like, even the idea of like, not, not exactly like I want to be in the NFL, but like I want to run at the Combine. But that's, what he, that's how he embraced this thing. It was refreshing because the thing, and, and, and I get wound up, you know, I get wound up. So we talked to him. I text you. I said, Jim, number first mom. He was talking about his mom, single mother in the Tampa area, had him when she was in high school. She gets an academic scholarship to the University of South Florida. She goes there. She graduates in three years. Basically, her parents take care of Nicholas a lot while she's at college. And she comes back and she sets up his life. And it's the two of them. Doesn't have any brothers and sisters. And, and he's talking about like what an amazing woman his mother is. But he's also talking about the idea that like football's his family. Football gives him siblings. Football gives him father figures. And he said, like, I can never repay the game for that. And so he is so excited to be here because he's going in and having interviews with teams. He's excited to small talk the coaches just to get to know the coaches a little bit because he knows one of these teams is sort of going to be his new family. And we, everybody calls football a family all the time. They call it the brotherhood. For Nicholas Petit Frere, this, this is it. Cause he has his grandparents, but like it's his mom and him. And he is so grateful and thankful and in the moment at something like this. So you had his numbers for his mom. Cause you had done a big story on Nick, by the way, his, his nameplate, they give you a little name tag that you little folded triangle name tag that you put at your podium. It said, Nick Petit Frere. Yeah. So it said that on his, uh, when they released the name, the list of players who were going to, go it said nick so i get is he nick now did he say so that? i asked i asked him i didn't get to ask what the podium but i grabbed him afterwards and i said nick or nicholas and he said my mom likes nicholas so it's nicholas right. sorry combine <laughs> you don't get to pick loris petit frere gets to pick and i said and then i asked her she said yes i like nicholas so mom yeah. gets to pick so i called her to talk about just sort of this this great uplifting 22 minutes. Nicholas petit Frere, man after my own heart, won't shut up in the best way. I'm in the worst way. Everything he said, it was like, Nick, 
you know, it's he did a TV interview as soon as he got off the podium. And like the TV interviewer asked him one question and he was talking for like two minutes. And we were like, Nick, they're going to take a 15 second cut from this. You don't have to be this interesting and thorough with every answer, but he's into it. So I was telling her how he was and that he seemed so grateful and appreciative and enthusiastic. And she was getting excited. And then she was talking about just, you know, I've taught him never take it for granted. And she said, sometimes when you're a parent, you don't know if your kids are listening, but he must have been listening because here he was in his moment, taking nothing for granted. So then later I'm walking down the hallway again. And then I see Nicholas Petit Frere walking towards me after I have talked to his mom and filed the story on him. And so then I was like, Nicholas, I said, I talked to your mom. And he was like, she said some guy called and I said, yeah, that was me. And I was like, she was so excited and I was so excited. So anyway, just like, you know, thanks for your enthusiasm. And I, he was just like, dude, could you just like leave me alone I'm done with this? Con-. No, he wasn't like that. I'm sure he thought it. He didn't say that. So anyway, Nicholas Petit Frere got me fired up on Thursday, Nathan, because I am a cynical person and in a world where a lot of stuff has gone screwy in the world lately, the last two years. Um, Nicholas Petit Frere worked for something his whole life. He and his mom worked for it together. And when he got here, he didn't just close his eyes and get down to business. To, to get down to business, he kept his eyes open, kept them open wide, and al- is allowing himself to experience every detail, every moment, every conversation, every 40-yard dash, and that's not always how it is because a lot of players talk about how it's a business. You learn it, man. You're learning it right now. And that was a fun 20 minutes with Nicholas Petit Frere. So as a cynical old man who's been at this more than a few times, I was grateful for that. I was grateful to him. So you guys can go read that story at cleveland.com. But Nathan, from what we know of Nicholas Petit Frere, he, if, I, if I told this story to you and said it was an Ohio State football player, it wouldn't even just have to be of the seven guys here at the combine that you, that you would guess from. You might have guessed from the entire roster. And if I told this story, I would imagine you might say, are you talking about Nicholas Petit Frere? Because that's the kind of guy he is. Yeah. So that story that I wrote was in November 2020. So like halfway through the year where it all finally came together for him. And it's been interesting to watch this develop because even though I wasn't here when he came in as like this, this, this huge um, well, <laughs> not, not yet huge in stature, but just huge in reputation uh, recruit. Um, I mean, I came in in 2019 and it was the talk was already kind of like, wait, he didn't win the job this year. Like maybe maybe something's wrong. Maybe he's not what they thought he was. Maybe it's not going to be there. And I, I remember him even getting that question that year. I don't remember what the circumstances were. We finally got to interview him that year. But I thought he sort of handled that in the moment you know, pretty well. And then by the time I was writing this article the next year, the breakthrough had already started to happen. And it was a lot about how he had to put on, you know, he came here with all this talent and all these expectations, but 40 pounds shy of where he needed to be. And even for big people, like that's not an easy thing to put that on the right way and, and be the athlete you need to be. And so the story that I wrote was actually about how, um, he, how the mom kind of helped him do that, like all the food that she had to buy and doing it the right way. And especially then during the pandemic, because as he was just about on the cusp of doing this and, and getting himself ready, they had to 
separate and he wasn't with the team anymore. And so then she kind of became his nutritionist in some ways. And um, just it's it's fun to, to see that family now get to have this moment. And uh, it doesn't surprise me necessarily that he's excited about running the 40, because I think if you're known as like an athletic agile, I think every tackle Every offensive lineman wants to be the big guy who comes and runs a fast time at the mm. 40. I think all the others maybe don't look forward to it. But if you know that you're like maybe one of the more athletic tackles, um, that maybe you can move a little bit more than the average tackle, then you probably do kind of look forward to it because you can be like, oh, I'm the guy that's going to show up and be the big guy where they go like, oh, that's a pretty good time. Not like, oh, anybody could have come in and run that time. So, um, but yeah, I think he he has the right perspective on this because of you know he didn't have it easy necessarily growing up and um not a lot of guys don't he's certainly not alone in that uh, and he had some you know got to play in a, a good program in high school and stuff and, and came up that way but it, it's just fun it's just fun to watch those guys regardless of what happens from here on in um and there's reason to think he can have a successful career obviously but just to, to kind of get to watch that family realize this moment after you know having to answer all those questions for a couple of years about are you going to get there and to see him get there has been uh, i'm sure gratifying for them and i think it's fun for everybody nicholas petit Frere faced five of the best edge rushers in this draft during the course of this college football season uh, daniel jeremiah from the nfl network his top 50 players has five edge rushers that ohio state played in the big 10 this year Obviously, Aiden Hutchinson of Michigan, George Karloftis of Purdue, uh, David Ajabo of Michigan, Boy Mafe of Minnesota, and Arnold Abikidi of Penn State. And Nicholas Petit Frere graded out really well, exceptionally well against Purdue. They, they shut down Karloftis and graded out pretty well against Minnesota. Bad grades against Penn State, Michigan, below 50 on the PFF. And that's something that, you know, He's been talking to teams about, and he said, you know what? I have good reps. I have reps that I lost. That's on my film, but I never gave up. I never wavered. I came back and fought every time. So, you know, there's, you know, this is serious job interview stuff. You're not just here to put yeah. on shorts and run for the crowd, but um, I thought it was, I thought um, I'm glad to see him enjoying that. Sarah Munford also talked to him just a rock Right. And just like he actually had a, a there's a Michigan reporter who came over and then I saw the story he wrote about it, about the Aiden Hutchinson play where Thayer got knocked on his butt, kind of got off balance and had the possible number one pick in the draft run him over. Um, and it's tough. He's like, yeah, I get asked about that. We we're like, do teams ask you about that? He's like, yeah, not really teams, but like people ask me about it all the time. I mean, the guys played like thousands of college snaps. He's a four year yeah. starter. It's like one bad snap against a top three pick. But, um, you know, he just was, you know, he wasn't quite as effervescent as NPF. It's hard to be. But, you know, this is a guy, he's a rock-solid player who I think will be a rock-solid player in the NFL. And, you know, he's trying to communicate that. And no regrets about staying at Ohio State for the extra year in 2021. Um, did talk about, he had the back surgery, obviously, after the 2018 season. He says getting asked about that a little bit. Team's asking, like, can you bear the weight on your back, right, of that thing? But I, I don't think it's holding him back. Um, hopefully, it doesn't. It, he didn't. Now he's not going to make it sound like that. But I don't know that it's a red flag for him because then he can get game back from the back surgery and played very productively for for multiple years at Ohio State. So those are the two Ohio State guys that 
um, were part of the festivities on Thursday again, Haskell Garrett and Tyreek Smith on Friday. But then I'll be curious to see Nicholas Petit Frere and Nicholas and Thayer Munford work out on Friday. Everybody talks the day before they work out. So that's the schedule for this. And um, yeah, I don't know. Anything else, Nathan? Again, you weren't at the actual combine on Thursday. You're going to be there Friday when we talk and wrap it up. You'll be doing a lot with Haskell Garrett and Tyreek Smith. The one thing I do, I do want to mention, I think I might write something. I might wait. Maybe we can combine. But, you know, there's four guys here for Ohio State who did not play in the Rose Bowl. Olave, Wilson, Petit Frere, and Garrett all opted out of that. They've all been asked about it. And I, I think I talked about Garrett's answer previously. And, and Nicholas Petit Frere, I thought his answer was good, too. Just like he basically said, I just didn't even think about any of that stuff until we lost. And until our ultimate goal was no longer there. And then he said, like, then you sort of like take a breath and you have a chance to think. And then I thought to myself, well, what's what's at stake now? Now I'm really thinking about what I want to do is get here. I want to get to the NFL and I want to put myself in the best position to succeed here. And that's when it came even as a possible idea. And then in that decision-making process, that's what I decided. So it's normal now for guys to opt out of games, but I still think, and it's not like uh, none of us intend it because it's not fair. I, I, I don't, it's not a court of law. Why did you opt out of the Rose Bowl? You know, that's not how it is. But I just think it's interesting to hear these guys talk about it. And his explanation, you know, was I was the same line of thinking of Garrett Wilson, just he explained it a little different, but I'm always curious, Nathan, just when guys let you in a little bit on their thought process, even if we kind of know what that thought process is. Well, yeah, I mean, because those guys weren't at the Rose Bowl and we haven't had uh, opportunities to talk to them since then. So they weren't involved in any of the pre-Rose Bowl interviews or the week of the Rose Bowl interviews or the post-game interviews. So this is our first chance to, to let them speak for themselves a little bit, any more than they did in their, their social media posts or whatever. But going back to Petit Frere, I mean, a year ago at this time, or maybe, maybe you know, 14 months ago, when we're trying to figure out who is going to be coming back and who's not, I mean, he'd already had a breakthrough year. And I didn't get the impression from talking to people around him that he really considered the NFL that strongly after that year. Cause he'd only had the one year as a starter at that point, even though he had graded out so well by PFF or whatever. So as much as he, again, was like a big time prospect, I, I think this has come a little bit later in his career and that his, that he had to like catch up a little bit mentally with kind of realizing where he was in the moment. Whereas someone like Thayer Munford had the full complete career, you know, put off the NFL intentionally, even when he, he could have gone his natural time last year and standing at that podium today, it doesn't to hear him described as a rock sounds, um, very apt just because I think he is kind of like a little etched in granite at this point. He's been through, as you said, you know, thousands of snaps and um, I'm very curious to see how he fits in to the NFL and with, with his versatility and his um, pretty demonstrable maturity at this mm. point. And then not that he feels, he doesn't feel old to me, but you've definitely seen just in these last couple of years, the way the confidence he has in just talking about himself and talking about football, talking about his journey 
which was a, a difficult one at times. And it, it, how he might just be sort of like, you know, mentally, spiritually, however you want to say it, you know, ready, ready for the moment. Okay. So Nathan, we will be back on the Saturday pod to run through everything else with Haskell Garrett, with Tyreek Smith, how Nicholas Petit Frere ran, how Thayer Munford did in all of his drills. We'll try to uh, bring you guys all of that. So for now, let's transition right now to Deontay Lee of PFF talking about some of these Ohio State guys. Again, this interview I did with Deontay on Thursday came before the receiver drills. So if he makes any reference to what are guys going to run, uh, that's because he and I did not know it at the time. And then after Deontay, I'll be back and Steve and I will talk about Ohio State's basketball win over Michigan State. All right, we're here with a great friend of Buckeye Talk, Deontay Lee, who was on this podcast, I guess, two years ago, Deontay? Yeah, right. I think almost to the day, just about. I want to say the thing that I wrote about Ohio State's defense happened about early February 2019. So basically right after that college football season where they lost in the semifinal to Clemson. Um, I want to say I wrote that right about after. And I think that we got in contact early that spring-ish, if I remember right, or maybe that was 2020-ish. And yeah, so it's been a fast two years. You know, obviously COVID kind of speeds up this whole process. Feels like we've been, you know, experiencing Groundhog Day over and over again for the last couple of years. So I'm glad to be able to be here, first of all, in Indianapolis, you know, finally get to see you and glad to be back at Buckeye Talk, which I kind of think of as a catalyst for a lot of the things that have happened in my own career, I think, over the last last couple of years. So Deontay now doing great work for PFF, and you have a podcast there right. as well. Let's make sure we get that right off the top. I hope you guys are reading Deontay's work at PFF. But what also, how can they listen to you? So you can find me at the Too High Podcast at PFF um, with a co-host of mine, Seth Galena. We spent a lot of time. It started off as a college football podcast, so we were almost 100% college ball. Um, even in the rebrand, we try to touch on it as much as possible, but you'll also get some time talking about some NFL stuff, and we try to take uh, take a look at some of the bigger narratives that are happening around football and, you know, take it in, in, in the filter of film analysis, you know, some of the things that we have available to us at PFF and trying to paint a complete picture of what's happening on the field um, on a week-by-week basis. It's been a really good time. It's a great podcast, really well-informed about uh, understanding the game of football, which is a thing that Deontay is a, is a specialist at. When you were first on here, Deontay, what caught my eye was this the piece you wrote about Ohio State's single high defense and some of the holes in that and some of the problems we saw with that in 2019 they kind of stopped doing that then um you i I don't know if they changed because of you (laughs) i would like to credit you for that but we've seen this entire change now with ohio state hiring jim knowles Mm -hmm. um just do you think ohio state's defense evolved the right way and do you have an opinion on what this jim knowles hire it's gonna be his defense now might mean for Ohio State. Um, I think, well, to answer the first part of your question, I do think that the change was necessary. Um, not necessarily because you can't play a lot of single high coverages or a lot of like cover one, which is single high with man coverage. Um, there's obviously still a place for that in the NFL. When you want to play tight coverage on passing downs, you see them playing cover one and rushing five, which is basically exactly what Ohio State was doing when they were, you know, playing their best version of football. The 
issue with that, you know, or one of the issues with that um, is that you have to have great pass rushers. And Ohio State, we obviously know, has had the luxury of having a bunch of pass rushers, especially, you know, that three to four year stint, you know, between the Bosa brothers, uh, Chase Young, and even some of the interior linemen who are great pass rushers. You think of like Haskell Garrett, you know, Tommy Togiai and some of those guys, and they were able to add a lot of value to it. But it does require having guys who are just, you know, a whole level above in terms of pass rush versus, um, you know, what these quarterbacks are able to do when they recognize it, uh, single high, especially man, and you're playing single high. You, you're leaving guys on an island, and I think that one of the things that Ohio State kept running into were that teams were giving them problems in the exact same way over and over and over again. And obviously in the 2021 season, the ultimate manifestation of that, I think, is an Oregon game where I think it became kind of very clear, not only for fans, but for the people in the program um, that if they were going to continue to compete at the level that I think we all expect that Ohio State expects expects itself to, to play at, that some changes need to be made. And I think that in bringing in a Jim Knowles, the funny thing is that for as innovative as Knowles is, I actually think that you're probably going to spend more time kind of returning to the way things used to be when you think about like Mark D'Antonio and, and what he was able to bring in in terms of like those four down linemen playing with two high safeties. Think about the time like Malcolm Jenkins spent there, you know. So, you know, over a decade old, but things that are still pretty natural, I think, to Ohio State in the way that they've played defense over the times. I think that things just kind of move in different eras, and I think Ohio State is kind of moving into a new era defensively where you want to be able to keep up with some of the cutting-edge stuff that you see from Georgia, Alabama. We've seen it from Clemson with Brent Venables, who's at Oklahoma now. Um, you want to be able to stay right right along with them if that's the, the kind of lens that you view yourself as a program as, and I think that that's what's coming with Jim Knowles as a defensive coordinator now. Let's talk a little about the Ohio State offense then uh, and what Ryan Day and C.J. Stroud were able to do this year with three tremendous receivers, um, statistically the best offense in college football. What do you think of the way that Ryan Day runs that offense and the way that C.J. Stroud was able to play on that offense as a young first-year starter? I think that, you know, one of the things I was talking with my co-host Seth Molina about, um, once they really found their stride um, in Big Ten play, it's almost machine-like, you know. You think about, for all the wide receiver talent, I think that just exists in all of college football, and you can be just about anywhere and find good receivers. We see it all the time, but the ability to not only have these receivers and develop them, when you think about, like, a Chris Olave, who obviously came in as not the highest-touted recruit and has basically been a contributor from his freshman year all the way through. You think about Garrett Wilson, who was a blue chip guy who became even better in his time at Ohio State. You think about Jackson Jackson Smith and Jigba and C.J. Stroud, you know, guys who have continued to just develop and grow. And I think that, that what that speaks to is an understanding of how to put guys in the roles and how to build things around quarterbacks, right? Like, what they do with C.J. Stroud now or the things that make C.J. Stroud a special quarterback at the college level isn't exactly a one-for-one comparison to what made like Justin Fields special as a quarter as a quarterback. But you see within Ryan Day is an ability to kind of tailor the offense to what needs to happen, you know, to, in order to get the best out of these guys. So, you know, one of the things that they've done extremely well is taking these downfield shots in the passing game. Um, a, because they've done a great job of protecting their quarterback. So that's always the, the beginning and end of it to me is you got to be able to keep your quarterback upright long enough to be able to get the ball where you want to send it. And then utilizing guys in the ways that they should be. So whether it's Garrett Wilson over the top of the defense, you know, I feel like I have seen, I can close my eyes now and see a hundred different clips of Chris Olave lined up to the wide side of the field, breaking out to the sideline and the ball landing right in his hands as soon as he turns around. You know, you think about Jackson Smith and Jigba and the way that he has just been a, a complete 
complete mismatch problem over the middle of the field, you know, and that to me, that is coaching. I think anybody, you can, you can put a marker in the hand of just about any coach and they can get on a whiteboard and blow you away with all the things that they can diagram up. But to me, at the heart of it is an ability to make decisions on the fly, make adjustments on the fly, and to be able to maximize the talent that you have available to them. You know, and it's not just in the passing game, it's in the running game as well. Because if you devote too many of your resources to trying to double these great receivers or trying to spy a guy like C.J. Stroud if he breaks the pocket, you also have a Travion Anderson. You know, you have these guys who are in the backfield who can also punish you. Um, and great and great tight ends, you know, we have record here at the Combine as well, somebody who's been very productive over his career. So it's just utilizing these guys properly and getting the most out of them. And that's why year over year over year, you know, you can count in the double digits of guys who are invited from Ohio State to come to the Combine and obviously go on to be in the NFL where they have tons and tons and tons of first-round picks and just draft picks overall. Let's talk about three of the guys who are here at the Combine from that offense. Let's start with Garrett Wilson. Mm-hmm. Um, actually measured in a little lighter mm-hmm. than I kind of expected. Mm-hmm. Under six feet tall, but we see the explosiveness. We see the catch radius. Pretty good wingspan for a guy his size. Where does Wilson fit in your evaluation of the receivers in this draft, especially in comparison to guys like Drake London and Traylon Burks and Jameson Williams? I think that it's, it's really interesting for me. and there I think that there's a wide range of the way that people feel about how Garrett Wilson projects to the pros. For some people who I really respect, they have him as a top receiver in the class. For others, they might be he might be at like five or six, and I think that he exists right within that range. I don't think that any one of them are out of bounds for what they project, and I think a lot of that just kind of comes down to what you believe he can do with his size at the next level. To me, in my eyes, I think when I look at guys like Cooper Cup, when I look at guys like uh, you know just the top slot receivers that we have, you know Hunter Renfro, who's obviously more athletic than um, and able to create a little bit more after the catch stand, but when I look at guys like that who are undersized or maybe not the prototypical body type of a wide receiver the way that we think about him um, because he's able to do so many things with the football in his hand he's so dynamic if you get him the ball over the top I think if you drop that guy inside you use him in motion you know you try to create these mismatches where you can get him the ball out in space and he can go create after the catch that's the best use for him and one thing that we can't deny is how dynamic he's been overall Big Ten play in playoff situations in bowl games you know in non-conference games He, you know, we'll talk about Chris Olave as well. Like one of the things that is clear is that he shows up no matter who he's playing against, no matter what the quality of corner or the quality of defense has been, he makes big plays, you know, and if you get him the ball with some space, you know that he's going to do something dynamic for the offense. So to me, I think the best use for him is to try to get him as close to the quarterback as possible, get him in the slot where teams can't press him. I do think that that's something that he can probably work on a little bit. He's not bad against the press. It's just maybe not the best wide receiver in the class against the press, but if you get him in situations where teams can't press him or he has a two-way go so he can punish guys if they get a little too handsy or start getting out over um, in front of their skis and lunging for them. Now you can really get them out in the space. He's got great hands and like I said, once the ball's in his hands, man, it can go anywhere from a first down to the end zone. I did think it was important for him to get back outside last year, mm-hmm. but he is really interesting in the slot. I was right. like doing cartwheels when they moved mm-hmm. him into the slot 100%. because of those two-way go options and, mm-hmm. and that often sometimes guys in the slot aren't as dynamic right. as he is athletically. And then we saw, I mean, we saw Jackson Smith and Jigba do the same thing 100%. from the slot position this year for Ohio State. So I'm, I'm curious to see how teams use him. Um, 
do you have do you have a receiver you love in this class? Do you love a London or a Burks or a Jahan Dotson or a David Bell or a Chris Olave or Jamison Williams or somebody? Well, I mean, obviously Olave is a local kid for me, you know, coming from San Diego, and I've been a big fan of his since he was at Mission Hills High School and Eastlake High School before in San Diego. Um, he's somebody, like, when I think about, like, complete skill sets, Chris Olave is actually the guy that I think about. Um, you know, I'm glad that he's going to be out here running through some of these tests because I think that we all expect him to run fast, but I think that there's an opportunity for him to put up a number that will really open people's eyes to him. You know, I think in, in a lot of ways there was almost more more meat on the bone that could have been taken advantage of for him. You know, I just think that because he has such a refined tool toolkit that Ryan Day could put him out to the wide side of the field and still trust a guy like that to get open. And what we know of a college football game where the hashes are wide as you know what, you know, it's hard sometimes to get the ball out there. So it speaks very well of him and his ability to separate no matter how defenses are playing him. So he's probably my favorite. If I was being asked to rank them, I would probably tie Traylon Burks and Drake London because now you're just ringing in the physical element of being 6'2", in Burks' case, being in the 6'4", 6'5", range. If you're Drake London, both these guys over 200 pounds, I think we all expect them to have, like, you know, greater than 36-inch verticals, you know. Um, there's a lot of buzz about what Traylon Burks might run in the 40. I think if he's able to get sub 4'5", that obviously changes the discussion 100% of the way. If Drake London is able to run, you know, close to sub 4'5", I think that that opens a lot of doors for him being a an oversized almost an oversized receiver in terms of height and weight um so there's a lot to kind of you know suss out in terms of these measurables and we'll get a pretty clear picture after the testing happens but Olave is my favorite and I would say Burks and London will probably be like if I made a consensus or was part of the consensus I might rank them first in terms of what I think teams would like most Jimmy Ruckert's a guy who didn't get the ball a lot at Ohio State worked on his blocking a lot in his Ohio State career it's kind of a I don't want to say a jumbled tight end class, but there's like a lot of similar dudes, it seems. It seems like everybody's 6'5 and 250. Some guys, Trey McBride got the ball a lot. Charlie Kolar got the ball a lot. Some guys didn't get the ball very much. I don't even know how you go about trying to figure out how you, you know, who you like in this tight end class. How do you think Ruckert fits into it? Well, I will say the one thing that is a greatest asset walking in is the fact that he is a plus blocker, a great great run blocker and what we know of the NFL now because the game is spreading out more and more these guys who play tight end who can really add value in creating these extra gaps are helping you you know against these magnificent edge rushers that we seem to churn out into the NFL year over year over year you need a guy who's the same size as these guys that's not 330 pounds trying to you know backpedal basically to block these guys who can add value in terms of protecting your quarterback you know helping you get guys out of the way on the edge so that way you know, you see all these outside zone runs in the NFL. And these are things that, you know, to Ruckert's credit, we have a lot of film over the years in his career of Ohio State of him adding a lot of value for this offense in that way. So no matter where he's drafted, you know, it's always hard to figure out with tight ends, you know. And usually the only tight ends we really talk about in the top half, you know, day one, you know, round two of the draft are the guys who add exponential value in the passing game. And those are usually few and far between. But for Ruckert, he's going to have a role no matter where he goes because we know he's an excellent blocker and he does have reliable hands even if he's not some four five five level of athlete you know at his size I think that his reliability with his hands and the fact that he blocks will allow him to stay in the league for a long time and that's really what you're after as a tight end is to have a role that's defined so that way teams whatever team you're at feels like they have to have you on the field to access the entirety of their playbook and I think that record will give you that 
last one, Deontay, talking about two guys who should be here in India a year from now. Mm-hmm. Jackson Smith and Jigba and C.J. Stroud yeah. went nuts in the Rose Bowl. Yeah. They have a long way to go, but they've also shown a lot so far. Do you think we could, would you anticipate, or do you think we will be here in a year talking about both those guys as potentially high picks in the 2023 NFL draft? I will say, if we take C.J. Stroud's momentum, even considering the the Michigan game where I thought that he might have left a few players on the field, if you look at it in its totality, and then obviously the way that they kind of put an exclamation point on the season in the comeback against Utah, if he and Jackson Smith and Jigba are able to continue to build on that chemistry, we may be walking here in, into Indianapolis next February talking about them being the top quarterback and top wide receiver in that draft class. And I think that you can maybe make an argument that that's where they stand right now. Um, CJ Stroud is somebody that I'm going to be really interested to see what the Heisman odds are. Um, I think that there is a great opportunity for Ohio State to get right back to dominating the Big Ten the way that we expect them to. And I believe that he'll be the front man on the way there. Um, and then with Jackson Smith and Jigba, we were just talking about some of these measurables and in the ways that we like to you know evaluate these wide receivers and you'd be hard pressed to find a, a box that he does not check athletically obviously he's got the height the fact that he was able to excel in the slot not just given his size but given the fact that nobody would have protested if cj stroud just threw the ball to garrett wilson and chris olave right them being superstar wide receivers in their own right that speaks to uh jackson smith and Jigba's ability to show out in practice to earn the trust of his wide of his his quarterback earn the trust of his position coaches um, and continue to shine in spite of you know this deep and talented um, class of guys that he has around him at Ohio State so I have very high expectations for them obviously they've delivered on a whole bunch when there wasn't much expected of them I thought the CJ Stroud handled you know him getting a rhythm early in the season I thought he handled that extremely well you know from whether it's the extreme people who were calling for him to be benched you know in, in lieu of Quinn Ewers while he was there to you know going through the ups and downs of the loss to Oregon, the loss to Michigan, and being able to keep his head on straight. Obviously, the rough start to the Utah game and him being able to rally there and lead his team to victory. You know, we talk so often about moxie and all these personality type things, and I think that because CJ probably comes across in press conferences as very cool, very laid back, I think that we almost associate that incorrectly with the lack of competitiveness. But if you watch the way that he approaches the game, that poise, that coolness, that calmness, we just saw what that leads you to. And that was two quarterbacks in the Super Bowl who I think did a great job of projecting cool and calmness in times of fire. Guys fighting through injuries, fighting through adversity and still being able to deliver. And that's exactly what I think the C.J. Stroud is. And like I said, with Smith and Jigba, a complete package in terms of a wide receiver. And then, you know, with Harrison Jr. being there and the rest of the wide receiver core, he's still got an opportunity to put up great numbers because it's not like you can just focus all your attention on him defensively. So I expect great things from the two of them, and I do expect the next time that we meet up in Indianapolis, we'll be talking about these guys, maybe C.J. Stroud being the first overall, and maybe Smith and Jigba being in the top ten. I definitely think that those things are potentially in their future. Deontay Lee from PFF, rising star in the business. So glad to have you here on Buckeye Talk. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Doug. Appreciate it. Back on Buckeye Talk, Doug Lamarie is joined by Stephen Means. Do a little basketball talk here at the end of this pod from Indianapolis. Stephen was in Columbus on Thursday night for the the two different Ohio State basketball teams. This was a different one that showed up, but as it turns out, one of these things, sometimes, Stephen, things just combine. As it turns out, a great Thursday night for three of the great athletes in Ohio State sports. Chris Olave, Garrett Wilson and Joey Brunk. 
Mm-hmm. What happened? Joey Brunk, <laughs> who was like a five minute a game, two point a game, grad transfer, scores 18 against Michigan State in the absence of Kyle Young and Zed Key. Like if Joey Brunk's Joey Brunk, do they lose? Like if he's normal Joey Brunk, if he's not, hello, I'm, I don't know. I'm Charles Barkley, Joey Brunk. This was insane, wasn't it? What was it like to watch? Um, so before I get into, because I have no idea how to completely explain what the heck we were watching on Thursday night, but I'll say this. Holtman, they had he admitted that they did watch the Michigan Michigan State game, and they saw the way Hunter Dickinson, who's also you know seven feet tall, was able to kind of have his way down there, and they they understood that Kyle Young Kyle Young's in concussion protocol, by the way, for the third time in the last year. But um, based based off a conversation that I've had, um, it's not necessarily the same. You know, as far as the extreme level that it was at, especially this one he got against Purdue in the Big Ten tournament. So they do expect him to be back at some point this season. But still, that's three concussions in 12 months. That's not and you're a basketball player. Like that's that's a lot of concussions. Um, but they do expect at least him to be back at some point. No word on what ZQ will be back. But they did understand the whole point is they understood they have a seven footer who does have some post moves. So they might be able to take advantage of some things and go through him a little bit. Now, 18 and six was definitely not on the table. But the idea that Brunk could have a double digit scoring night was on the table. But uh, you're right. If if Joey Brunk doesn't do what he does and Jamari Wheeler doesn't have a, one of those Another one of those nights where as a streaky shooter, it's a net positive for them again. They don't win this game. 80 to 69, Ohio State wins. 75 of their 80 points come from four guys. Malachi Branham scores 22. That makes sense. EJ Liddell scores 19. That makes sense. Joey Brunk scores 18 and Jamari Wheeler scores 16. Five combined from the rest of the team. This is a really good win for them. It is odd that they have now lost to Maryland and Nebraska while beating Illinois and Michigan State. They beat the two better teams. They lost to the two worst teams. I'm trying to figure out, like, I guess does this means something, Stephen, in terms of, like, gut check, bounce back, injured guys, next man up, find a way kind of stuff. But in terms of, you know, Joey Brunk and Jamari Wheeler combining for 34 points, in that way, this game is not particularly informative for how Ohio State might play in the Big Ten tournament or the NCAA tournament, right? But the bottom line of find a way to win against a Hall of Fame coach, that's pretty good stuff. It's my problem. Yeah, Jamari Wheeler is not going to shoot four for eight every single night, and he's proven that because he's had other games where he's had four threes, and he's had there's – a, there's a reason why after the game, Tom Izzo's like, if I would have thought – if somebody would have told me that you know, Jamari Hiller was going to – Wheeler was going to hit four threes in the first half. I would have bit my life against him. There's a reason why he's saying that. And he's looking frustrated. And basically his whole face and demeanor screams, I can't believe we just lost the game to a big man who's averaging 1.1 points and Jamari Wheeler hitting three-point shots. That, that tells you everything you need to know about what those two did tonight in comparison to what Malachi and, and EJ did, which they do every single night. But th- this entire week has been another testament to what's wrong with this team in the sense that they play to the level of their competition. This team is good enough to beat Duke, who also has a Hall of Fame coach, and they're the number one team in the country. But they're also – they can lose to Nebraska, and they can lose to Maryland. And the question is going to be, when we get to the NCAA tournament, 
depending on their opponent, which version shows up is the opponent kind of like talent as Ohio state, then okay, then probably they're going to win that first round game. But if they play a team where it's, there are five seed and it's a 12 seed, they are on upset watch again because of that. Big 10 standings through 19 games, Ohio state finishes the regular season at home this weekend against Michigan, Wisconsin, 15 and four, Illinois, 14 and five, Purdue 13 and six, Iowa and Ohio state tied for fourth at 12 and seven Rutgers sixth at 11 and eight, then Michigan state and Michigan, both 10 and nine, Iowa and Ohio state tied for that four spot for the, the double buy in the NCAA mm-hmm. tournament. Iowa has the tiebreaker. Is that right, Steven? So the only way yes. that Ohio state winds up as the four seed is if they beat Michigan and I don't even know who does Iowa finish up with. They play Illinois on the road. So Ohio state is going to try to beat Michigan at noon and then they're going to be rooting for Illinois. So that's definitely, I mean, I guess those are the two most likely outcomes, right? That Ohio State beats Michigan. They're at home. They have a better record than Michigan. They should win that game. Michigan doesn't have its head coach. And Iowa's going on the road against one of the best teams in the Big Ten. So it's certainly possible now that Ohio State winds up with that four seed. How important is that? Like, how, 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 what are the stakes, would you say, for this season finale against the Wolverines? It's important because you're missing your two best big men, you know, and you just I I, I kind of asked Holtman that question that um, obviously you can't you control what you can control. But how valuable is that extra day off when you're not sure when you're getting either one of those guys back? And he basically agreed with me. Yeah, it's it's very important in this year. When you've had the injuries that you've had this year, you're not sure when you're getting Zed Key or Kyle Young back. So. Let's just say Kyle Young isn't cleared until Friday, but you have to play on Thursday. Well, then you have to play another game without Kyle Young. And the same goes for Zed Key. And so the longer you have to go without playing a basketball game, the closer you get back to getting one of those two basketball players back. Now, I say Kyle Young more likely than Zed Key because Zed Key's still in a boot. He was in a boot walking around during Tuesday's game. He was in a boot walking around on Thursday's game. We'll see if he's still in that walking boot on Sunday when they play Michigan. But one, it's an extra day of rest for your team who has, as we talked about over time, it's three games in six days. And they're just, you know, every third day, basically for the last three weeks here, they've been playing a basketball game. So it's an extra day of rest, but also it's one less game you have to play without Kyle Young or Zed Key. So obviously Brunk and Wheeler, um, outstanding games that you cannot necessarily, well, you can't, you can't rely upon that every game and they don't and they won't. But the Liddell-Branham combo, that is something they rely upon. For them to combine for 41 points, 15 of 28 from the field, 4 of 9 from three-point range, 7 assists, uh, 3 turnovers. How good were Malachi Branham and EJ Liddell in a game that the Buckeyes needed on Thursday night against a good opponent? Yeah, I thought EJ was really good early on when they got out to that 13 to nothing lead. He hit his first three shots and it was kind of like he was playing like he knew how important this game was and how he, he pretty much he set the tone. Yes, Joey Brunk did what he did and Jamar did what he did. But it all starts with what EJ was able to do out the gate there by getting basically leading that 13 to nothing lead to start the game. Malachi started kind of slow, but he picked up as the game went on. This was kind of best case scenario. 
in this situation of Malachi and EJ did what they did and they were the afterthought of the game because other guys showed up to help them out. And so it didn't feel they had 22 and 19, but it didn't feel like it was, man, if they didn't have that 22 and 19 from those two guys, Ohio State would have been trouble. And that's that's perfect. That is, you you need games like that sometimes where your best players can just do what they normally do and nobody even bats high at it because we're too busy talking about role players. So listen, we know Kyle Young and Zed Key out. Those are two main rotation guys. We talked last time we talked basketball on this pod. Kyle Young is like playing as like the third best player on this team right now. Those are two big guys that you're missing. Joy Brunt comes in and plays 32 minutes as a starter, goes seven of 10 from the field. Three-man bench on Thursday night, Justin Arns, Michi Johnson Jr., and Cedric Russell combined for 37 minutes, one of two from the field. They only took two shots. They scored three points. Those are three guys that you would expect will have roles, will get minutes, will play games in the NCAA tournament. Anything there that is a any kind of red flag in this game, or was it just a weird thing and Holtman leaned on the starters. All five guys that started played at least 28 minutes and throw out the fact that the bench did nothing. Um, no, it's fine for this game because you got the production elsewhere. And that's what's key. I don't really care. After Malachi and EJ, I don't care where the production comes from. It could be a different person every night. It just needs to be somebody. Somebody needs to write their name on, okay, we're playing Michigan on Sunday. It's my turn. I need to go be a double-digit scorer, or I need to be help. I need to help in the rebounding total. And we've seen other guys step up, so that can be a revolving door. I don't care about any of that. I think the Michi Johnson situation is still weird because, like, he played like three minutes the game before, and then he plays fourteen tonight. And you threw Jimmy Soto's out there, and now Jimmy Soto's doesn't play tonight. And then like Justin Orange plays sometimes and sometimes he doesn't. So but that's weird to me. But but Cedric Russell only took one shot because Jamario Wheeler took 11. So I'm not worried about that. That'll flip some other times. And then Eugene Brown just takes what he can get. Taking that. He's the somebody's got to not be a scorer in the starting lineup. And it's going to be Eugene Brown on a given night. So tonight, I don't it doesn't matter because two other guys showed up. Did you think Ohio State was going to win Thursday night? I did. I picked Ohio State to win. And my logic behind it was because they lost to Maryland and they lost to uh, Nebraska. So, of course, they're going to beat Michigan State because it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Hard team to figure out, but that's better than, oh, we figured out Ohio State. They're falling apart down the stretch. (laughs) That's not a thing you want to figure out. So good win for them. I saw the comment from Tom Izzo about he was disappointed in the crowd. At the Schottenstein Center, what was the vibe from the crowd? Did you get any sense from the crowd of like what they think of Ohio State basketball? And and like what was the context of Izzo saying something like that? I'm going to tell you guys a secret. The context was him and Chris Holtman had a conversation about Ohio State's fans. And because Chris Holtman can't go up there and say it, Tom Izzo went up there and said it. Because once Chris Holtman sat down, the first thing he did was go on a tangent about how much Tom Izzo means to him and how much of a mentor he is to him and how they were texting each other after their losses on Sunday, having conversations with each other. So that's all that was. (laughs) Holtman's definitely developed a love-hate relationship with Ohio State basketball fans sometimes. The crowd was fine. It was a good crowd, especially once Joey Brunk got going. They kind of rallied behind him. Every time he touched the ball, 
there was anticipation of what move he was going to make. When he left the court, he got standing ovations. When he came back on it, it was like, yeah. So it was a good crowd tonight. Um, the Nebraska crowd was not good. Um, there have been other games where the crowd has not been as good. The, the Duke game obviously had a good crowd because it's Duke, but there are also plenty of games where, you know, it's not really, you can't really even fill the bottom bowl of the, of the Schottenstein Center. And even then it's kind of quiet and the fans aren't really into it. But then everybody gets online after the game and complains and what's hope and calls for Holtman's job. So that's all this was, was Chris Holtman and Tom Izzo had a conversation and Tom Izzo felt like because he's Tom Izzo and doesn't have to deal with the flack of it, he can go out there and say, hey, Ohio State fans, you suck. Cheer for your team better. Tom Izzo taking bullets for the entire Big Ten. I yes. can totally... Hey, Chris, hey, you man, you guys kicked our butts. Anything you want me to complain about on your behalf up there? Yep. Chris is like, well, actually, we could use a little more support. It was like, I got this. Um, that's what happens when you make 12 <laughs> final fours or whatever he's done. And you have a national yeah. title in your pocket. And they're going to build a statue next to the Magic Johnson statue outside the Breslin Center when you're done. So um, it's funny that Izzo is like that. Because like Izzo's like that with everybody. Like Thad Mata loves Izzo. Like everybody loves Izzo, which is, which is kind of cool. Like, it's, it, you know, sometimes we joke about sort of, uh, you know, having conference chants and SEC pride. And does the big 10 have that kind of pride? You know who I think like would do a big 10 chant, Tom Izzo. I think Tom Izzo would be like, you know, if, if, you know, it's like Wisconsin's in the final four, Tom Izzo would be like in the, well, maybe not if he has like a fight with Bo Ryan, but like Bo Ryan's gone, you know, like would be leading a big 10 chant, you know, like let's go Matt Painter. Let's go Chris Holtman. It's like Tom Izzo's there for the big 10. All right. Good win for them. Do you think they beat Michigan on Sunday? Yes. Because Michigan's like right um, in the middle. It's like Michigan's not good, yeah. but they're not bad. So if Michigan was bad, you'd be like, ah, I think Ohio State blows it. If Michigan yeah. was in the top 12, you'd be like, ah, I think Ohio State gets the win. It's like mm -hmm. they're like right at 500. And like Michigan's Michigan's not going to make the tournament, right? Like Michigan's out. No. They're not playing for anything other than, you know, Michigan and Ohio State are supposed to hate each other in basketball. And they're still probably mad about Juwan Howard getting suspended. So they want to go take it out on somebody. But um that's a game Ohio State should win right well, I'm not gonna say they should win um because of what we just discussed but I think they'll win it because they play with a sense of urgency tonight like they knew okay we can't win the Big Ten but we need that buy and we need that double buy more than anything and they understand that they gotta put themselves in the best position to do it they can't we can't get to the 730 Iowa and Illinois game and Iowa already knows it's the four seed. So, yeah, I, I think Ohio State wins. And I think the reason they win is because Jawan Howard is not on the sideline. Twelve and seven now in Big Ten play 19 and nine overall for the Ohio State Buckeyes. Stephen will continue to follow that basketball team up through the weekend and then through the Big Ten tournament when uh, Nathan and I will be back in Columbus next week. And Steven will be, it is an indie, right? It's a big time. Yeah. It's an indie. yeah we're Steven, just, yeah. We're just trading yeah. places. I'm just going to take Doug's hotel room. We're not, he's not yeah. even going to check out. I'm just going to move in. I'm not even going to, they don't have like the, uh, the, the maid service here, you know, cause a lot of hotels are doing that now. I'm not even yeah. going to make the bed. You can just come oh, sleep thanks. in my, like my mangy four day old bed. Save, uh, save Cleveland.com some money. I'll just continue. And I get the points. I keep the Marriott points for your like six day extended stay. No. <laughs> so, okay. Good football talk in this podcast. Good basketball talk. Thanks to Nathan. Thanks to Steven. Thanks to our old friend, Deontay Lee. We'll be back on Saturday for a combine wrap up Buckeye talk. And then Monday, look for a basketball Buckeye talk 
uh, at least part of basketball. I think we'll do all basketball. We do have spring football coming early next week, but Monday we'll, we'll reset where this basketball team is heading into the Big Ten tournament. For now, thanks to you guys for listening. And that was Buckeye Talk. <laughs>